Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of this episode, you'll have something simple that you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Scott Mahoney, the chairman and CEO of Peter Millar. Now, I happen to be wearing one of his shirts right now, one of his sweaters right now, one of his pair of slacks right now. I love this guy's line of clothing. Believe me, it's unbelievable. You know, I once heard someone say, your core values are only your core values if they cost you something. That's so true. When a leader says they're all about the customer, you'll know that they actually mean it when the business is willing to put their money where their mouth is. The great leaders I know go the distance for quality, serving customers the best product they can create, and they're willing to invest in people, resources, improve their processes, do whatever it takes to make their product and their services the absolute best. Now, when Scott talks about putting the customer first to Peter Millar, believe me, he's not just talking the talk, he's walking the talk. In fact, he says it's never about trying to make more margin or trying to take something out of your product. It's always about adding something to your product. It's about the customer being first, not the bottom line being first. Now that's some real wisdom. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Scott Mahoney. Scott, I can't wait to dig into how you lead, but, but first a little background. You team up to buy Peter Millar in 2005, which at that time only had $4 million in revenues and you had just five employees. Give us a snapshot of your company today. David, we've been able to grow the company uh, to 350 employees. We sell around the world. Uh, we've, we've grown it since that 2005 number, probably about 100x. You know, it, it's pretty amazing what the channel distribution is now with Neiman's Nordstrom, 18 retail stores, big e-commerce business. Uh, very, very different company than, than the four, four million five employee days. <laughs> no question about that. And you build a power brand and it is truly a great consumer success story. Scott, before you made the big move to, to buy Peter Millar, you had a tremendous success uh, track record climbing the ladder at Polo. Do you recall an experience there that really changed your career trajectory? Yeah. Ralph Lauren is, uh, I, I would argue, the finest apparel brand in the world. Uh, the things that they do and the things they teach you and the the taste level of uh, Ralph Lauren and, and the people that come through there, it's really a, it's the P&G of the apparel world, really. And, uh, you know, the things that I learned, I mean, I had a boss for years, Joy Herfel, who was the president of the wholesale business. And the things that she taught, which really have stayed with me, are uh, the being prepared for meetings, being prepared for every occasion. And you never can go into any business meeting, any sales call, anything with anyone and not have thought through all the outcomes. And I, I would say that's one of the great things that stuck with me. Uh, you know, the other thing is just the disciplines that you learn it with that, with a company that big, uh, it's really kind of helped Peter Millar, kind of formulate who we've become. 
Did you have one moment at Polo that really, you know, took your career even more forward than, than you might have ever thought it would go? Not necessarily one thing in particular. Uh, I took over the golf business. You know, I was running another business within Polo, and I took over that in the tennis. And that was the first pairing of my love for the game of golf and then with, with apparel. And I would say that's probably the trigger that kind of opened my eyes to this world and really kind of gave me the view to what, what I could possibly do down the road. Uh, though I didn't go into that with the intent of, of uh, buying Peter Millar or doing something like that. But uh, I knew what it took to kind of build a business. And so you pair the golf side with the brand and you're really able to, uh, to accelerate some growth. Scott, I'd love to hear what you learned working with the iconic Ralph Lauren, not the brand, the person, and what you, what you personally learned from him. You know, David, I think what you learn is when a, as big as that company is, he cared about every detail and his passion for the small things and, and his taste uh, carried forward in every business. And I think you talk about someone able to keep a culture as you become much bigger. And I think Ralph was able to do that through his kind of demanding, demanding excellence, uh, expecting it and then controlling so many pieces of the business and controlling the brand. So you're doing great at Polo, which you said, and I totally agree. It's one of the finest apparel companies in the world. And, and you get this idea to buy Peter Millar Tell us a story about how this came about and how you mustered up the courage to make such a bold move. I was driving back from a USGA meeting. I lived up in Connecticut at the time, and I was had a meeting at, out in Far Hills and was making the trek after a dinner to Connecticut. And it was a, a meeting that was just another great meeting with them. We had done a lot of business with them. And just, you know, ideas when you're in a car alone and you're just kind of driving along, and it hit me. I said, I, I had seen Peter Millar at various locations. It was really primarily a sweater company at the time, a cashmere sweater company. I thought, I loved what those guys were doing. And I, it kind of hit me. So I went home the next day. One of the partners uh, I knew from, he was in Tennessee and I, I called him and kind of scheduled a meeting. And I ended up flying down to uh, North Carolina, met with the three partners. We kind of formulated an idea and a price and actually flew from there to, to Sea Island, met with Bill Jones and uh, kind of put the whole thing together really in a very, very short period of time. It was, you know, it was a small company and, and I did think we could make it something. We put the business plan together. I thought we could grow it to a $5 million company pretty quick uh, just by doing some basic blocking tackling, added product lines and, uh, the three original partners were wonderful guys and smart and we were able to kind of take what they had started and really grow it. And, uh, you know, we achieved every milestone along the way, but, uh, clearly have blown past the 50, uh, mark, which I did think was, uh, was, would probably never happen, but we've been very fortunate to that degree. So. Yeah, I would say you've blown past it big time, you know, now Scott, I've learned that you took a, half a pay cut. And at the time you had four kids. Did you have any people that you respected tell you that you were crazy when you did this? I mean, 
What was it that you have inside of you that made you want to go do your own thing? Uh, you know, I've always kind of believed in myself and, uh, and I, I would say this was really pretty clear and it's a, it's strange to say because it was a big leap. You know, my wife who was, uh, my wife, Molly, who you mentioned, it was incredibly supportive. She said, you could do this, uh, but we're not moving to North Carolina in case this doesn't turn out to be a real opportunity or a real company. All the, you know, apparel jobs are in New York, essentially. And so I commuted for about four years. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I thought we could do it. I thought there was a, a hole in the market. Uh, you know, the, the business at the time was really two, two different businesses. It was uh, Ralph Lauren, but it was Polo. And then there was another company, Fairway and Green. And they were both really fine companies, but that was it, you know. And so, uh, just this kind of clarity came to me. And it sounds a little clairvoyant, but it just it made sense. And and like I said, I thought at fifty million we could make enough money for all of us to survive and have a pretty good living. And uh, you know, it just took the big leap. <laughs> Scott, your vision early on was to make uh, Peter Millar a premium lifestyle brand. What exactly do you mean by that? And, and what was driving your thinking? Well, you know, the, again, you learn from Ralph Lauren, who built like the, you know, ultimate lifestyle business. And so what, what that means and how you have to go about that is you have to have the products and to add on to you know, a sweater company, you have to have the sports shirts, the shoes, the other categories that kind of start doing it. And yet, you know, yet, the, the thing that we never failed on was we always delivered incredibly great products at great values. And our infrastructure was such that, you know, being in North Carolina, having our distribution center there, controlling it all, it allowed us to really give the value where we weren't paying for New York offices, uh, big warehouses in New Jersey, or, you know, we, we ran this thing like a mom and pop shop and really did everything ourselves. You know, when we traveled, uh, you know, we, we roomed together. We did little things that kind of you, you have to do as a small company to make it. And, you know, I'm proud to say, like, every year we've been in business, we've made money. You know, and a lot of people say, oh, we're building this to we're, we're building this, you know, we'll make money soon or we'll, you know, these, uh, a lot of tech companies, it's all about revenue numbers, but we've built this where we, every year we're trying to make money. We run it like it's, and always have, like it's our own money. And I, I think it shows through uh, with the product, with the, the way we treat the employees, the way we do everything. And uh, it's led us to some great success. You know, you've built huge shelf presence in the best golf clubs in, in the world. Tell us the story of how that happened. One of the things being at Ralph Lauren the, early on, I, I got, I had great relationships in the business. Some of my best friends are golf professionals. You know, we hired, I would say the key thing we did along the way was we hired some incredible salespeople and they allowed us to, and gave us the credibility to go into these shops and get the shelf space and the relationships. And, you know, anyone can get a few tables in a, in a shop. You can always sell a few shirts. But the way that the business takes off is when people keep coming back and back and back and they want your new products. And, 
you know, we, we kind of innovate ourselves every, every six months. And I think that's allowed us to get the shelf space, to become the desired brand. And, you know, we actually have a waiting list right now because uh, we can't sell everybody. We, we want to kind of keep the brand special. And I don't think too many people and too many companies have the discipline to kind of have a controlled distribution uh, and, and, and try to do it the right way in each of these shops, treat each professional the right way and deliver on time and deliver quality products. And, and that's how we've built this. Well, I love your clothing. And I have to tell you, I, I, I go to a lot of golf uh, shops and it's hard to find anything but Peter Millar. <laughs> you, you know, I, I also know your, your first big retail account was Nordstrom. That had to be a huge shot in the arm. Uh, tell us how you went about landing such a prestigious retailer. You know, again, I'll go back to the salespeople. One of our sales uh, folks out on the West Coast had a good relationship out there. And, you know, so that business started and we nurtured the relationship. And, you know, I think we're one of the top two or three men's brands at Nordstrom. And, you know, then uh, I'll tell you, Dave, the next one that was really the, I think, you know, there's few strokes of luck along the way in any business, I think. And uh, a, a funny story about Neiman Marcus. Uh, Jim Gold, who was the president of Neiman Marcus, who's a, a wonderful guy, was out, up in Boston playing in a member guest at a club uh, with just this gentleman. And the guy had a shirt on. And Jim Gold kept hearing the guy rave about this company, Peter Millar, Peter Millar. And he didn't know who it was. And so when he went back to his office, he, he got on the phone and he called our general mailbox, you know, Peter Millar, 1-800-Peter-Millar, whatever the number was, and left a message said, this is Jim Gold from, I'm the president of Neiman Marcus. I'd love for someone to have, from so, for someone to call me at Peter Millar and uh, we'd love to put it in. And we, we actually thought someone was punking us. And so we, we called them and, uh, and he was serious and he was very passionate about building a business. And so, we grew uh, with Neiman Marcus into probably for two or three years straight, we were the number one men's brand, number one men's growth. And so with that, Neiman's and Nordstrom and the golf accounts and what's been able to happen is it's just given us kind of brand credibility from a men's lifestyle apparel business. And, uh, you know, we have our own stores now. The e-commerce business is quite good. We sell great specialty stores across this country. So of kind of a, a multiple channels, which is a pretty good hedge as the economy kind of goes up and down. You know, I understand that uh, you talk about adding a little value. Every shipment you ship to a customer has a signature mint inside the box. What's the thinking behind that? You know, when, when that started, and, and it was really clever, I, I'd say, you know, the early, the early team, and then it, it's even taken different forms, but you know, the, the key to any business in ours, it's getting your product on the floor fast. And so the, the way that we would try to do it is we wanted when our box arrived, it had a mint in it. And so the person in the stock room or wherever it was, was dying to open the box to get the mint out. Then the next key was to make it easy for the people within the, within the shop. So sometimes people just throw product in, they pick it, they pack it. And it's just there. And it's a jumbled mess. They don't have the proper paperwork. So we used color paper so that our paperwork was always orange. So they knew when the Peter Millar product was in, 
it was orange. The next thing we did was we stacked it in the order, the product in the box in the order of on the packing slip. So the idea again went back to you sell it the fastest when it's on the floor. You don't sell it what's in a bo- when it's in a box. And so we just really wanted to make it easy and a, a, something that people wanted to deal with and get the product out. I love that story. You know, it, you know Scott, I always like to, to get inside of the head of a leader and, and how you make a big decision. Tell us why you decided to get into the brick and mortar side of the business opening your first retail store in Southampton, New York, a little over 10 years ago. You know, what's interesting about our company is it's it's so much more diverse than people realize. So like if you only shop in a golf shop, you'll see a lot of times just our performance shirts and maybe some sweaters and outerwear. But we make beautiful suits. We make great sport coats. We make, you know, all kinds of different trousers. We make sports shirts. We you know, we have underwear, we have socks, we have shoes. And the only way to show some of the diverse products was by doing your own brick and mortar. And Southampton, granted, that's a very small store. It was a good foray into our own store business. I mean, we we opened New York not long after that. We opened Palm Beach. You know, we have 17, 18 stores now. Uh, you know, again, the idea was to display our lifestyle product and give someone the ability to go in and see it. And this was really even pre, pre-internet, pre-web e-com business exploding. You know, this was one of the few ways you could really see people's product. And, uh, and that was the idea. And, you know, and coupled with the store, we, we launched a catalog, which was the same principle, was to do the exact same thing. It was to go to a broad audience and show them that we do more than just golf shirts or just more than shorts. Was that a physical catalog or a web catalog? No, a physical catalog. And we still do it, actually. You know, and then, you know, people say, you know, uh, brick and mortars is dead or, you know, you got to let, you know, we, we want to, we're going to probably open over the course of the next 24 months, another 15, 20 stores uh, strategically placed in, you know, smaller markets. Uh, the catalog that we did was a, was a mail order catalog. You know, with great imagery, we, we tried to show the lifestyle we've done. You know, along those same lines, we just launched, uh, you know, again, trying to separate ourselves from others. We just launched a crown journal. The idea there was uh, to just take people we admired in the world, you know, whether it's Thomas Keller will be featured in this next, the, the famous chef. Uh, we have Gil Hansen, our next issue. We have... Uh, you know, a, a great uh, gin company, a chemist gin, which make the finest gin and maybe in the world. But so taking those kind of things and associate them with our brand kind of diversifies us a little bit, features different things and makes it interesting while all the while showing our great lifestyle apparel. Did you develop the the crown logo, Scott? No, that, that kind of morphed over time. I, I, you know, when I left Ralph Lauren, I didn't really appreciate how difficult it is to have a, a logo. Uh, and if you really think about it, there's not many iconic logos out there. Uh, you know, the polo player obviously is one, but, you know, we tried to do a, we did a crown. We did a, one with a big shield for a while. We did a multicolor. We dropped the shield, left the crown. Uh, I would say it's still actually a, a work in progress. We quite haven't mastered it, but, you know, uh, <laughs> We do want to be able to identify our clothes outwardly when, 
you know, and, and people like, you know, our guy's not a garish guy, but he does like having some symbol, you know, that he's got, you know, our shorts on. And that's why you'll see it on the pocket or on the back yoke of an outerwear piece. But uh, we, we're still fiddling with it, trying to figure out the, the perfect way to do it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to figure it out. And, and the same year you open up that store in Southampton, you, you get the honor of dressing the United States President's Cup's golf team. The brand isn't that well known at the time. Uh, how'd you break through the clutter and, and, and get such a prestigious opportunity? As, as the brand grew, I mean, I, I really believe that people loved our quality. And they, they loved our style. We had very classic, but, you know, updated styling. And, you know, it just, we became quickly, I think, kind of the premier brand in golf. And, and it was because of a controlled distribution. It was because of great products we delivered. Uh, people love cashmere. People love, at the time, that was Mercerized Cotton Shirts, really kind of pre-performance. You know, then... You know, several years after that, Corey came to us and we did the, the Ryder Cup team in Wales. And no, those were not our rain jackets, but uh, that, you know, there was a little bit of trouble that they had with the rain jackets at the time. But, you know, it just was some great honors we had. We we had a great relationship with Titleist. David, I mean, that, you know, that you, know, you talk about uh, strokes of luck. You know, Wally Yulon came to us years ago and he wanted to marry a, a an apparel brand up a bit with Titleist. And this was pre them launching FootJoy, which has done really well. But Wally came to us and you wanted his Titleist players to wear a, a brand. And he came and we forged a partnership and we had 30 of the best players on the tour, Titleist players out there wearing Peter Millar. And again, just these are all little pieces, you know, of the foundation of the brand we've been able to build over time. And, uh, I don't think there's one thing that attributes to the success, but uh, there's just a lot of pieces that contributed to it. Well, you can be lucky once, but you're not lucky a lot, lot, you know, all the time. I mean, so you, you guys have really put a string of good big wins together. And you were one of the first brands to, to launch e-commerce when it wasn't really that vogue to do it. You know, it, it seems like a no-brainer now to everybody else. Uh, when did you have the aha moment? when you knew it was a must for the company, you said, I'm, I'm going to bite the bullet and we're going to make this investment in technology. You know, my, my, my brother has been in that business for a while uh, in a, just a whole different category. And we used to talk about it and, you know, it, it was a real challenge at the time because of the channel conflicts, you know, you know, this was, like you said, this was early on and, you know, we had great relationships with specialty stores and golf shops and, they didn't necessarily see it as additive. And what, what the tough thing was explaining that it's a big world out there and not many people could see are going into the pro shop in a, a Jackson, Mississippi or wherever it may be. And so uh, we started My my daughter was a, this is, this was kind of a funny story. She was actually the second employee. She processed manually processed orders uh, while she was in high school and she worked with another lady and, yeah, then several years ago, we, we hired a gentleman, uh, and contrary to what you just said about luck, David, we, we have had uh, an incredible string of luck, but we hired a gentleman, and he came to us, and he was in the sneaker business and uh, wanted to move this way, and 
we gave him a lot of autonomy to build a team and the disciplines that he's put in place. You know, we, we, we have uh, just got off two meetings today and G, and, uh, G4 and Peter Millar about e-com and to see what these folks do and how they go about it. It's uh, the success isn't surprising because of the effort they put in and the thoughtfulness, but you know, we, we run it all ourselves. We, we use some, uh, partners that we have to, but we, we shoot everything ourselves. We have our own photo studios. Uh, we manage our own uh, artistic direction. We, you know, we kind of control everything. The digital marketing, the, the, the different teams are, are really quite good. You know, there, there's been a digital explosion across retail with the, with the pandemic. How has it affected your business and, and how are you taking digital now to the next level? You just said you had a couple meetings on it. What, what's, what's coming? Well, you know, it, it's, it's really expanding it. And, you know, the, it's probably the largest area in the company where we've added talent and you, it's a different kind of talent. It's not talent that I would come close to ever having. It's, uh, it's these, these young folks that come and, you know, we're lucky we're in Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, which is a very desirable place to live, but we were able to bring talent from New York and Boston. And so the first part of your question was about the pandemic was, I would say during the pandemic, it really saved us because uh, especially stores were closed. Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom were closed. You know, it's in, in this business, you have to plan six months ahead. It's not like you, anyone really knew what what was really coming. And so we had inventory here and then we had inventory on the way for the fall season. And, you know, we were able to get through that time by, by running the business in a disciplined fashion through our e-commerce channel. You know, it, it helped us acquire customers, but you know, the nice thing now is we're starting to see the other businesses all come back. Uh, Neiman Marcus Nordstrom are coming back. Specialty stores are coming back. And so, you know, I think, I think the main thing we need to do now is really triangulate all the components of the business. So you have the e-commerce business, you have the specialty business, and then you have the marketing of products that you have to tie to it, along with the planning and the inventory. It's a, a bit of a circular reference. And, and that's, that's really the focus nowadays. You know, while we're on the, the topic of COVID, how much do you think the way we have worked has changed forever? And what do you see happening in that at Peter Millar once things get back to normal? That's a great question. And I don't really have a great answer yet other than to say that, you know, we empower our, our teams and we don't, we're not monitoring their computers and the, the, some of these things you hear out there. We believe in our people and, and I don't think we missed a beat not being in the office. So the warehouse was obviously open. Uh, we have to ship product. And, and the warehouse team took steps to, to make it a safe place where there were teams of three and not, you know, not the entire warehouse working conjunction like they normally do. But, and then the, the design team was in and then the photo studios in because those areas have to continue and collaborate. I would say going forward, there's going to be a definite hybrid for us. You know, the finance team, the customer service team, they they have their work to do. And whether they're at home and not having to drive 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 45 minutes, uh, 
they get their work done. And I, I, it's, it's actually a great feeling to see what our company's been able to accomplish in this past year by not missing a beat, by uh, trusting each other, by learning how to communicate differently. And I think that uh, going forward, I think there will be a hybrid for us. Uh, you know, and just one, one last note on that. You know, it's funny, we built a new facility. So we have two offices. We have a downtown office, which is an old mill building. And then we built a 120,000 square foot warehouse. And we're on pace to outgrow our warehouse again. And this is our third warehouse in 12 years. And you could say it's poor planning. I, I say it's being conservative. But uh, this the office space, we're about out of office space. And the structure that we're going to go, probably going forward, you know, starting in September is my guess, uh, will be a bit, that hybrid will allow us to, to be to function in the space we have. And I think you're going to see a lot of that as opposed to, you know, us having to try to take different spaces, different warehouses. And uh, so that is one, one nice byproduct of what we've been able to learn. Now, Scott, you buy Peter Millar, your private company, then Richemont buys you, and that's owned by uh, the renowned Johan uh, Rupert. He's one of the world's best businessmen. Uh, what have you learned working with him? What has he taught you about leadership? A lot. Uh, he's an amazing man, and his, his breadth of uh, knowledge and passion. You know, I, I see how he interacts with all the different businesses he has, and the level of information that he knows is amazing. And, but I would say the thing that I, I most admire is his loyalty and how he treats people. We work well with the Richmond team, but you know, Johan has been very, very great to not take our entrepreneurial spirit away from us. Uh, you know, as a, and sometimes in a, when you're acquired by a big company, that can happen. And you know, I would say, if anything, they've given us confidence to take some chances. They've uh, they've given us some disciplines that are needed in an entrepreneurial business. And uh, the thing that I'm incredibly proud of is since they bought us, we've probably grown our business, uh, you know, probably seven or eight X in, you know, since 2012. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I, we always feel like our entire team feels like, you know, they've been great to us. We have an obligation to deliver. And, uh, you know, and I will go back to that one thing about Johan. It's, it's, it's not about margin. It's doing it right. It's controlling distribution. It's doing the right things. It's treating your customers right, making your products great, and having integrity in your company and in your products. And I think if you look across their entire portfolio, that's what you'll see. How are you approaching building a global business, Scott? I will say that's an area where Richmond has been a tremendous help. Uh, you know, we're just launching G4 in Korea, Japan, China right now. And, you know, some of the, the they've got experience there. They've got offices there. You know, we've, we've done well with the Peter Millar brand and, you know, traditional places where Americans go, uh, Ireland, UK, uh, you know, but as we really want to grow the, the, the business and the brand globally, we need more expertise. And I, I think that's, I think one of the really key areas that Richemont's helped us. 
uh, the disciplines over there and understanding the partnerships. And you know, it's very, very different how you go about a market. You know, the fact that Korea is uh, as important as it is and how that sets the tone for a lot of Asia is, is, is uh, really critical. You know, Scott, the, so many brands, particularly in fashion, lose their way by trying to be something that they're not. Was there ever a time you got outside of your lane as a brand and, and what did you learn from it? We had a company come to us several years ago about doing a furniture line. And, you know, it seems like, oh, what a great, easy thing to do. It's a great brand extension, furniture. Well, the reality is we don't know anything about furniture. You know, we, we know a lot about clothes. Uh, we're really pretty good at this business. Uh, I think if we tried to, to stray out of our lanes and we wisely passed on that, and that would have been guaranteed royalties and, you know, a nice bit of money. And, and I think, uh, you know, avoiding chasing the dollar for products that you don't know or believe in doesn't really work. And uh, I think we've had the discipline to stay away from things. And uh, I would say that's probably not being in the furniture business is probably the best thing we've done. <laughs> I, I would agree with you. <laughs> yeah. What do you do to keep your team on top of the trends in the industry, keep yourself on top of those trends? And uh, what do you think your company does uniquely to drive innovation? David, to be successful in this business, I think you have to have a passion for it. You have to, you know, this may sound a, a bit trite, but you've got you've to gotta shop. You've got to shop the market. You have to understand the competition. You have to understand who does what well in every category. You, know, you can't just say, oh, that's, that, I understand that company. Well, there, there may be a great pant company out there. You need to understand what they're doing and why. Uh, you know, our, our teams travel the world. Uh, we have a fabric development team that's constantly trying to innovate new fabrics. Like I said, we try to innovate ourselves, you know, every six months, you know, back two or three years ago, we launched a, uh, an athleisure line, uh, kind of a Lululemon line. And what happened was we found out that at that time, people didn't really want that from us, but it, it kind of gave people an insight to a different part of our company. And we're actually coming back with it again now because, you know, as this casualization's taken effect, you know, people more casual, working out, walking more, going to the gym, hanging out on Zoom calls. And, you know, so we're kind of relaunching that. But, you know, we constantly look for niches and then product categories and new fabrics and then paying attention to the competition. Uh, whether it's someone is is you know high end as Laura Piana or uh, Cuccinelli or you know even you know down to different you know Instagram brands that are out there, you kind of have to pay attention to everyone. And the minute you fall asleep, you're done. And I would say that's kind of how we were able to get Peter Millar going. I think we really snuck up on everybody. And you know, and I don't I don't want to say that it was from other companies laziness, but they just didn't pay attention. And, uh, and we're not going to do that. Well, now you're the big bear that could get poked. So I'm sure you're, you're, you're really pushing everybody to stay on top of that same mindset that you had when you grew the business, you know, you did make a, you've mentioned this a couple of times. You, you made an incredible acquisition with the, with the G4 golf shoe brand 
what led you to this brand and, and why has it been such a huge home run? You know, I, we always admired what they did. And so it was, it was funny. You talk about innovation, David, and we, we were sitting around a, a meeting. There were probably 10 of us in there. And we said, look, we want to, we need to kind of try to feel a little younger and, and do something different. And G4 has this really creative edge to them. And so I knew Massimo and I called him and his team and I said, yeah, we'd love to do a collaboration with you. And so we did this collaboration. We launched these three different golf shoes with them and, and uh, they were wildly successful. But what blew me away was the speed with which they were able to kind of come up with the concepts. And so we came up with these concepts quickly and uh, we did this and they were such a pleasure to work with. But we, what we also learned along the way was they didn't really have the infrastructure and, and we've built a pretty good machine at Peter Millar, you know, and that machine includes the finance team, accounts receivable, accounts payable, production, planning, uh, all these parts that oftentimes are behind the scenes that no one really appreciates on the, on the consumer end. And so what we were able to do was we kind of went to them and, you know, again, it was just a bit of an idea to say, look, we, we want to buy you guys and you know, what will it take? And we, we all got along really, really well, which I think was, was critical. Uh, you know, we've given them creative freedom, but we've taken all their back office and, We've put a lot of our expertise that we have as a company, whether it's the e-commerce side, whether it's the digital side, the, uh, the digital marketing, the production, the sourcing, the planning, all these things. And it's really allowed us to really grow that business so much faster than they could have, you know, had they gotten involved with a P firm or anyone else. It was just, it was maximizing our expertises. You know, Scott, uh, you give credit to all these different functions and you're renowned for being an outstanding people person. Uh, describe the culture you're, you're, you're building and, and how you plan to evolve it as you think about the next five to 10 years. Yeah, the, the biggest challenge I think we've faced a little bit, and then the Zoom world we're living in now really makes it even more difficult. Uh, you know, we've got a a culture where we treat people great. I, I, I truly believe that. Well, like, uh, and they love the company and they love the brand. And, you know, and people are proud to work for this company because you, they go home and their families, their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their wives, all, all love our products. And so, you know, so we've got that going for us, but the, this customer service, this, uh, this, this life of living for our customers and loving what you do and not settling for the status quo is a real challenge as you bring in all these different new people. And, uh, you know, so we've really emphasized during this time to, to work with your teams. We, you know, we had communications every week for the early part of this and it went to monthly, but you know, you have to communicate, you have to tell people, you have to let them believe in what you're doing and the trust that you gain from them, that you're giving them a safe work environment. You know, during this, during the pandemic, we did not lay off one person. We, uh, you know, and that includes our store teams. So think about that, David, our, our New York store was closed. 
and we didn't lay off the employees. We continue to pay them. Uh, you know, you do things like that and you, people see that and, you know, the loyalty and trust that comes that you're actually out there to, to provide a great life for people uh, resonates and then they understand it. You know, and, and I'll, I'll share one other story for you, just a customer service story. And so one of our early employees was a guy by the name of Alan Rowe and it was December 23rd. And a customer called him at five o'clock and said, oh, I forgot I needed this sweater for my customer. And, you know, UPS and FedEx were all gone. And, and so what Alan Rowe did was he went and picked the sweater himself in the warehouse, drove it to the airport and got it on a FedEx plane going out somehow, however he figured this out. So the customer could have it on Christmas Eve day for one sweater. And, you know, that's, that kind of goes along the stories of, you know, the Nordstrom people, you know, taking back a tire, you know, even though they don't sell tires, they, they, you know, their, their services, they'll take back anything, but that's what our service commitment is. And, uh, and I think that's what we try to really instill in every employee we have is that care for one unit and that carries forward and forward. So, so you just basically are trying to make sure you keep that, uh, core element of your culture going as you you think to the future because you're growing so fast it's harder and harder to do exactly you know scott leadership is about taking people from me to we when you look back what would be your biggest example of taking people with you you know it's funny when we when we first bought peter millar and and i i felt an obligation uh that if a big mistake was going to be made it was going to be mine so for the first five years of the company, every stitch that came into our building, I essentially bought. I did the planning. And I would sit with other folks, but I would say, we're going to buy 400 of that or 800 of that or 200. And it was my number that I would put down because that's, that's how businesses die, is inventory, bad inventory management. And I, I would say you know, it got to a point where it just couldn't do it anymore and turning that over to a team. So I, for a couple of years, I still sat with them on every buy. And now we have a, a, an entire team that does that. But I would say, David, like early in an entrepreneurial business, you've, you've got to have your hands in everything. And there just, there gets to a point where you just have to truly trust everybody and, you know, what's wonderful is, and it's been like this for a long time here, is I think we all have a trust in each other and a respect for each other. It doesn't mean we don't challenge each other. It doesn't mean we don't push. But the respect and trust allows us to, to kind of step into our lane, focus on what we need to focus on. You know, a lot of what I need to focus on now is the, the, the human part of it, the development part of it, the mentorship of our employees. Uh, you know, kind of identifying the holes where we need to grow, the holes where we need to find talent. Uh, but I would go back to the old planning as uh, the kind of the a bit of the aha moment where you just can't do it all anymore. Scott, you've had so much success, but every leader has a big fail somewhere along the line. What's yours and what did you learn from it? You know, we, we first got in the short business 
And we, we met a guy and he said he can make great shorts. And we, we bought these shorts kind of sight unseen to do it. And, and they were terrible. And you, you start, you do something, we sold a lot of them and you start losing your brand credibility. Uh, so it was an inferior product we made. And there was another time just around the same time that we, we haphazardly changed the fit of our sports shirts, which is a big category for us. And so we went through an entire year of trying to figure out bad shorts, shirts that were like the shoulders were in. It was just, it was terrible. And, you know, we stood by it. We didn't deliver some of it. Some of it worked. Some sizes worked. But, you know, we had the relationships that allowed us to stay in business. But what it teaches you is not to take shortcuts, uh, whether it's product development, whether it's specking out your products. Uh, it's, it's, it's literally taking the time to do things right and not rushing into decisions, uh, though we do need to be nimble. You've certainly survived from those mistakes and uh, building a tremendous brand. You know, Scott, this has been so much fun, and I want to have a little bit more. I want to wrap this up with a lightning round of Q&A. Are you ready to go? I'm ready for you. Okay. What three words best describe you? Uh, maybe competitive, uh, passionate, uh, fair. What's your biggest pet peeve? Uh, tardiness. I, I love meetings starting on time. I, I, I worked for years uh, where you'd wait and you'd wait. And uh, now if you don't show up, the door gets locked on you. <laughs> what is something about you that few people would know? Uh, my first job out of college was with Union Carbide. Uh, I sold industrial gas. <laughs> Do you have a hidden talent, Scott? No, can't sing, can't dance. Uh, I love to cook, though. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's that's good. What, what leader do you admire most today, and why? This isn't to, to brown nose Mr. Rupert, but I I love the bandwidth that people have and the passion for uh, his businesses, and I think he exudes that when you talk to him. Uh, and I think he's an incredible leader. I really do, and I. I think uh, I think just the knowledge that you that someone has about each business and how deep they go, and then the caring of the employees is is in critical uh, quality to me. You know, speaking of leaders, Scott, what what would be three bits of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders? You, I think you've got to be willing to take a chance. Uh, you've got to be willing to make a mistake, and uh, I, I think. If you can find a passion, it's not easy because it, I, I, I was incredibly fortunate. I, I love the apparel business and I love the game of golf. And so uh, I was able to marry the two. But if you can find a passion, you know, if it's selling and it's selling for selling anything, uh, I think you got to follow your heart. And it's not always following a dollar. The money will come. And so I, I would say those are the, the three. You know, Scott, you know, you mentioned passion and you're a passionate family man. What have you learned uh, about leadership and 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 being a passionate family man? Uh, I think there's a time and a place for everything. I, you know, I try not ever to bring 
any work stress home with me. Uh, I think you've got to spend time with your family. I think you have to, uh, you know, we try to do little things in the company where we give extra days off. We do summer, several summer Fridays. Uh, you know, it's little things like that that allow people to spend extra time with their families. I think, uh, and I think also, you know, you know, my uncle taught me something. It was kind of interesting. I'll share this with you, David. It was, you know, he, he ran a bank up in Boston and when his, his executives would go overseas or any of his team, he would send flowers to their wives, you know, and as a company, we, we do the same thing here. And as a company, when you show that you care about someone's family, you, if someone's gone for 10 days to China and you send flowers to their wife to bring a little happiness to their family while their significant other's gone. Uh, it's things like that that kind of marry the business part and the family part. And uh, we try to live that. Well, I think that's wonderful. And I think that's a, a, a great place to, to, to end this uh, conversation, Scott. I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing the Peter Millar story and, and being the kind of leader you are. You know, you're compassionate and you care and your people obviously know it and you're getting fantastic results. Well, thank you, David. I just, uh, I love what you do and I find it inspiring. So thank you. Well, that was an insightful interview with Scott Mahoney because what he talked about is essential to any business. If you don't have great quality, you're not going to have a great business for very long. It reminds me of when I first took over as president of Pizza Hut. I realized that the reason why the business was in the tank was that the Pizza Hut folks, for whatever reason, had taken the product quality down by trying to save money, reducing the number of toppings, reducing the quality of the toppings. So we went back and created a project called Lightning Bolt. And guess what we did? We put more toppings on our pizza and higher quality ingredients on our pizza. And you know what happened? The business turned around and the sales went up because our customers were happy. We quickly reclaimed the number one spot in quality. This commitment to quality works for brands like Peter Millar and pizzas and any category that you can possibly imagine. Now, here's what I'd love for you to do. Think about one aspect of your business that's directly impacting your customers. It could be the product that you deliver, a marketing email that you send. Heck, it could even be as something as simple as a process for generating invoices. Now, ask yourself this. How can you improve the quality of your customer's experience at whatever touch point that you choose? Write down some ideas this week and then block out a little time on your calendar to execute at least one of those ideas. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders go the distance for quality. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple in each episode that you can apply to your business so that you can become the best possible leader you can be. I'll see you next week.